Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we'll be discussing the Trans-Papua Highway development and violence in the highlands of Papua. In early December, at least 16 civilians and one soldier were killed, with five others missing, in attacks on workers constructing the Trans-Papua Highway in Induga district in the Papuan Highlands. The armed wing of the pro-independence Free Papua movement has claimed responsibility as part of the protracted conflict between the Indonesian government and sections of Papuan society. Indonesian police and military have launched joint operations in response, reportedly also causing several fatalities. The two Papuan provinces, Papua and West Papua, have the lowest human development index scores in Indonesia, and the Jokowi government has placed infrastructure projects like the Trans-Papua Highway at the centre of its approach to the area. In the wake of these attacks, though, questions inevitably arise regarding Papuan attitudes to such development projects, their likely impacts, and regarding Papuans' perceptions more generally of the Indonesian nation and their place within it. To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Dr. Jenny Munro, an anthropologist from the University of Queensland School of Social Science and author of the book Dreams Made Small, The Education of Papuan Highlanders in Indonesia. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, could I start by asking you, how would you describe the levels of development in the Papuan Highlands where this Nduga attack took place? Overall, I think we can say that the levels of development, according to all the measures that I'm aware of, are quite low. So I have to say that I haven't been to this particular area where this attack took place, but I've been visiting Wamena in the Central Highlands since about 2006, quite regularly. So the measures that I've seen about Nduga, though, is that indicators like life expectancy, average years of education, and a few other criteria are quite a bit lower than even other areas of Papua where they are already quite low. So one example is life expectancy in Nduga. Regency is about 58 years. In Jayapura City, it's about 70 years. With those lower development indicators than what you have in even other parts of Papua, let alone other parts of Indonesia, Infrastructure development and connectivity have been a focus of the Jokowi government's policies towards Papua. You know, that's included this 4,000-kilometre Trans-Papua Highway, where we've had the violent incident in Nduga. It's included renewed efforts at expanding electrification, as well as a policy of selling fuel at the same price in Papua as what it sold in Java. Now, how do Papuans view policies like these, including, of course, Highlanders in Papua? One really important thing to keep in mind here, I think, is that Indonesia has for a long time conducted this kind of development infrastructure expansion into rural and remote areas. And what it has meant for a lot of Papuans is sometimes roads that are unwanted, roads that don't have kind of permission or have certain kinds of permission and not other kinds to proceed. It also means an influx of migrants from other parts of Indonesia, as well as potentially significant military presence as well. So Papuans, I think many developments today are viewed through a lens of the the fear that Papuans are kind of diminishing in number 
that they are becoming a minority, that their lands are being taken over. And we've seen this quite clearly in urban centers and in the capital cities. But there's a concern that rural areas that have continued to be primarily Papuan over the years are also an increasing focus for this sort of expansion. So Papuans often point to a lot of negative effects when roads um, and other kinds of projects come in. So there's the workers who are brought in from other areas of Indonesia. So people have complained and felt marginalized by the fact that they are not being employed in these projects. So that's one aspect. But they also tend to bring in things like trade stores, different kinds of foods. And also with migrant male laborers, we often see a kind of flourishing sex trade. And so this is also of concern to Papuans who are aware of this dynamic. Some of the work I do is around HIV. So there's an HIV epidemic in West Papua. And it's one of the big fears that Papuans have about how they might just be eliminated. They might just disappear from their own lands is through HIV infections and death. So there's a lot of negative effects that Papuans feel through some of this development. Another really interesting aspect of this, though, is that this particular kind of infrastructure and road development project has defined a really explicit role for the military to carry out this work. So from the beginning, these projects, especially the roads, have been defined as military kind of run projects that in, that include military personnel in you know as builders of roads and in and this you know extends into other areas as well so the military has been used to run education projects for a long time now or to intervene in health crises so some of these distinctions between what is a, a development worker a road worker and who is is a military personnel are sometimes fairly fuzzy in rural and remote areas. And it also kind of just goes against a strong aspiration among many Papuans for demilitarization for, for less military presence. So when the military is actually implementing development in remote areas, this kind of tends to get people upset and there are some various kinds of tensions. And we know, you know, it's well documented some of the experiences that Papuans have had when military personnel set up camp in their in their area. Have those sort of experiences of marginalization where you have had road developments and the like, does that produce, do you think, an opposition to development of any sort or is it an opposition to development that has brought the sort of consequences that we've seen to date in, in parts of Papua for the indigenous population? Yeah, and I think it's much more about the specific ways that development has been conducted and marginalization in that process. And it's not an opposition to development, generally speaking. So one of the things I've noticed growing over the past couple of years has been kind of the number of Papuans at all different scales of authority and status saying things like, we need to save Papuans, that Papuans are kind of under threat, that we need to address all of these social, educational, health, and other crises that are unfolding because we're really kind of suffering here. And we've seen that with even like the the health department has been having some of these kinds of statements in Papua. The governor, Lucas Nembe, has probably made, I think, some of these kinds of statements about the need to save Papuans from what is seen as kind of an impending population disaster. And so people are very much in favor of interventions and ideas and I think agendas that put Papuan lives you know, first or that protect and show care for people's lives. One of the things that's been revealed in the reaction around the Nduga incident is this 
kind of immediate condemnation of the attackers for having killed non-Papuan civilians, quite a bit of outcry about this. The Indonesian government was immediately issuing statements about it. And I would imagine that Papuans are also reading that reaction through the lens of their own experiences where when Papuan civilians are targeted by the state or military personnel, it's quite a different story, right? There tends to be denials, there's delays, sort of stalling, there's very little kind of, I don't know, accountability that's demanded from security forces in Papua. So I think that is a way where people are getting this message, again, that Indonesia values non-Papuan lives or, or, or lives of, of migrants more than it values Papuan lives. And I think that is part of, yeah, what has happened when the, the military has been so involved in implementing development over the years. To expand on that point, you have mentioned this idea of the sense of an impending population disaster within Papua. Could you expand a bit more on how that is discussed by Papuans within Papua? I guess my work over the past, say, six, seven years has really focused on health, but specifically HIV. I think that, I guess, people's observations are that their numbers are dwindling. So friends of mine in the Highlands will say things like, you see all these huts, these kind of traditional huts around that people have in their yards and their kind of home areas. Well, you would think there'd be a lot of people here looking at the number of huts, but they're actually empty, you know, or things like we're constantly going to funerals, old people, young people, middle-aged people, but especially kind of this sort of youth age group, which is believed to be most affected by HIV. So I think people are experiencing a sense of that kind of decline and, and death really around them. At the same time as, so another area of work I've been doing is about alcohol. So there's like a proliferation of home-brewed alcohol, which has recently been banned in Papua, basically on you know on the grounds of saving Papuans, that this home brew is killing people, it's creating all sorts of violence and havoc, and that when Papuans are perceived to have been drinking, security sector people react with quite a bit of violence towards them. So I think those are some of the the kinds of expressions. Some of the more recent work that I've been doing is about people's experiences giving birth in hospitals some of their encounters there. And there's a lot of concern about that circumstance and concern that there's rising rates of cesarean section deliveries in Papua and that this kind of goes hand in hand with a broader Indonesian agenda to potentially sterilize women without their consent or to just limit the amount of children women can have because having cesareans, repeated cesareans, is sort of limits the number of children you can actually give birth to. These are some really kind of recent expressions that I've heard of an overall feeling that Indonesia doesn't really value Papuan lives. Um, sure. And it, it's worth saying, though, that it's more intense in certain kind of communities and among certain people than than others. And I think Highlanders young people, educated people are probably much more critical and articulating this kind of perception than some people from some of the other areas of Papua. This point you raised of a feeling that has emerged among Papuans that the Indonesian government places less 
value on Papuan lives um, and the way that this Trans-Papua Highway and other road projects have have created a a sense of threat, particularly because of military involvement in their construction. I guess the irony in that sort of impact is that, I guess from an Indonesian government perspective, I imagine projects like the Trans-Papua Highway uh, and other large-scale infrastructure construction uh, in Indonesia's periphery, uh, a part of kind of an implicit project of nation-building, of seeking to secure a sense of belonging from communities near Indonesia's borders within the nation and to expand the presence, the visible presence of the state into those areas. How does that sort of dynamic play out for Papuan Highlanders? I mean, you've touched on this a bit already, but could you expand a bit on how Papuan Highlanders perceive the Indonesian nation and and their place within it? I think that with Jokowi, there was some significant sort of hope that he might have some positive kind of effects in Papua, although people pretty early on recognized that politically not much was going to change. But I think certainly when people don't have lights in their homes, when they can't get places, when their schools are empty or their health centers are terrible, they probably do feel a a sense of kind of um, lack of investment, a sort of a sense of injustice. And it's one of those, those narratives that people come back to. Why is Papua so rich in natural resources? And yet the Papuans themselves live often with so with so little. So I think that there's certainly an embracing of some of those kinds of interventions that would allow them to live more prosperous lives like they imagine and maybe even know firsthand some people in other parts of Indonesia live. But I think at the same time, there's a perception that a lot of this development is about sending messages in the rest of Indonesia. It's about sending messages internationally. It's not being done in a way that's likely to benefit most Papuans, and that there's, like, for example, some of the development that relates to the road but is further south is around a giant kind of food and energy estate that Jokowi has established and would like to have people growing rice and other things, palm oil in these areas. But this is being framed as a measure to improve Indonesia's food sovereignty and food security so that it doesn't need to import as much, so that it produces enough for its own domestic markets of all of these kinds of things. But it's not being framed as a Papuan food security issue, right? It's sort of what Papua can do for Indonesia. And that really follows in a long-standing pattern. And I don't think people are seeing much difference on the ground in terms of that pattern. Just, I mean, in terms of belonging more generally, I think, and some of the work that I've done and things I've written about, I guess suggests in a way a kind of shift, a kind of disillusionment has taken place over the past, say, 20 years, where especially for Highlanders, they were the the ones that I'm most familiar with were the first generation to be educated in the Indonesian system, for example. And they sought out higher education, they went to other parts of Indonesia, they kind of looked for some of these nation-building moments and encounters. Um, Let's go and learn about how people do things in Sulawesi, or let's go and make networks in other parts of Indonesia, let's learn about new cultures. But these forms of belonging didn't actually eventuate. So the legacies of racism and of this association of Papuans with the Stone Age, uh, with the penis gourd, this kind of thing, 
they really persist in many parts of Indonesia, not, you know, completely in a homogenous sort of way, but such that Papuans, I think, who have sought out a broader national belonging have often found themselves rejected in, in certain ways. And that extends not just kind of from an affective, experiential dimension, but it's actually built into the structures of how many things operate. Like, for example, that if Papuans want to have a job in the public service, they need to do that at home, in their home regency, usually. So even if you went and spent time in other parts of Indonesia in order to kind of go forward, you'd have to return home. Could I draw you out a bit on that? Because I think it's a fascinating point you're making there about an initial generation of Highlanders who have engaged with the Indonesian education system, including higher education uh, in other parts of Indonesia. Could you just talk us a bit through what the trajectory of a Highlander sort of entering into higher education would be and the the sorts of experiences that, that that has brought for them? Well, yeah, like I was saying, the generation that I'm sort of most familiar with graduated high school, say, in the late 90s, and they were the first to go through the full kind of 12 years of Indonesian schooling because their parents were partially educated when the the Dutch were still there because the Dutch arrived in the Highlands in 54, 1954, and Indonesia kind of began its presence in the Highlands around the sort of mid to late 70s. So I think... People that I know grew up with this quite a very nationalistic Indonesian kind of rhetoric about education. It's common throughout Indonesia, really, about the kind of transformative potential of education. It's fed into by international development, World Bank, and all sorts of other areas where they're focusing on developing the, what they call the human resources or the, the human kind of quality, the quality of the workforce, this kind of thing. So people that I encountered in their late teens, early 20s, really felt like they had a strong potential to learn things at higher education and then kind of go home to various areas and transform some of the conditions that they grew up with. So people talked about things like their younger siblings having no shoes or not speaking English or the lack of roads or the lack of electricity and some of these kinds of things. And they talked about their hopes that they would be kind of a force for development back home. I think there's probably a a little bit of idealization there around what education can do for people. But and part of that story goes back to a kind of both a Christian history in the sense of Christian missionaries introducing the first education in the Highlands as kind of a way forward for enlightenment and kind of bringing the light to these populations. And so education was already kind of held up as an important value. But also people have a strong perception that Indonesia was able to basically come in and take over their lands because Papuans or people in the highlands specifically might not have known. They might not have they might have lacked some kind of knowledge. They might have been sort of tricked or cheated somehow. And so knowledge and experience and networks is seen as critical for defending your place, territory, and also creating your future and maintaining or improving upon the current situation. But so in my experience was with young people who left the highlands because so the only universities really are in Jayapura, Manakwari, a few other cities, but many Papuans also want to leave Papua for their higher education. They believe that there's higher quality education to be found elsewhere, but they also might have some of these other goals about cultural mixing, cosmopolitan kind of ideals, go live in a big city, it'll be exciting, some of this kind of stuff. As young people, you want to get away from home and have a bit of an adventure too. 
But the students that I got to know over the course of kind of many months spending time together, they encountered, even though they went to a Christian area as well, where they expected to find some Christian bonds with Indonesians, they found that they were treated in quite racist ways, that they were stigmatized as intellectually inferior that they were also stigmatized as kind of separatists and and therefore they got surveillance and intimidation sometimes from local police in those areas. So this, I suppose you could say, also extended into the university, their encounters with teachers, professors, administration, as well as in the broader kind of community around where they were living often for several years doing higher education. So there's definitely some kind of hardship and disappointment and some experiences of racism and discrimination that maybe they didn't quite expect they would find in these other areas. And then upon returning home to the Highlands, there were not very many kind of employment sorts of opportunities and most of the the jobs. So most people went into work for an NGO and a few joined the public service, but Public service, which is actually where most Papuans are employed, is kind of seen as a very, I don't know, it's an uninnovative, it's a a very Indonesian-centered institution. It is not a place where you would transform anything, really. That's the perception that young people have of it. So they were kind of, I think, thwarted in some of their their goals and didn't find as much of the, the transformation that they were looking for. Yeah, sure. and but I do understand, though, that in the time since I finished the bulk of my research with those young people, there have been some new kind of developments. And the main one is probably perhaps that some young people see a future in politics, in elections, and in those kinds of spaces where in the past they were more sort of resigned to either NGO work or public service work. I mean, it's interesting you pick up on politics because under special autonomy, of course, we've seen elected mayoral and gubernatorial positions reserved for Indigenous Papuans, including the election of a Highlander in Lucas Nembe as governor of Papua province for the first time. Has this had any effect on Highlanders' perceptions of their prospects? My understanding is that, yes, that there's been a little bit of opportunity around working in political roles as a potential option for young people, political parties, and getting involved in those sorts of activities. But I think the election of Lucas Nembe is a little bit more complicated of a story. So I think that, well, yes, people do have a certain amount of pride about that. They have also seen him struggle to assert power, I think, and they have seen him kind of having these conflicts with Jakarta. So some people will view that as further evidence that, you know, even a Highlander in charge, they're still kind of not able to determine their own fate, their own policies. There's a lot of negotiation and sort of dancing that goes around that. There's also a fair bit of kind of alliance building, I think, that people have seen and sometimes they're critical of. So the kind of alliances he's forced to make with pro-development, with military, with various other kinds of yeah aspects of that dynamic, that people might see that as further evidence, yeah, that they're not really able to determine their own fate and their own policies. It's fair to say in the wake of the Nduga attack that the issues that you've been canvassing here of benefits flowing to other parts of Indonesia 
um, of fears of diminishment and marginalization, of, of lack of investment in Papua, I'd say haven't really been the issues that have dominated Indonesian media coverage of the incident. I think it's been driven in large part by statements by senior government officials around sort of uh, armed criminal groups, armed separatist groups and the like. Going beyond the the issue of racism towards Papuans that that you've mentioned within Indonesian society, do you think these issues of marginalisation and the like are are understood in broader Indonesian society of of how they're affecting Papua? Mm, Not in a broad way, but I think among certain groups and in certain ways, yes. So I think recently we saw throughout Indonesia kind of an unprecedented number of public demonstrations in early December around what Papuans mark as their kind of Independence Day, the 1st of December, in support of justice in Papua, opening up Papua to a human rights investigations, a political dialogue, political process, and perhaps even um, Papuan independence. And these were not just populated by Papuans who live in these cities around Indonesia, but allies, non-Papuan allies who are in social justice work or in other kinds of political organizations. So I think that amongst those populations, some of the everyday marginalization as well as the the political context is quite well understood. I don't think that that is very widespread though at this point. Returning to Papua and that issue you mentioned of the military being sent to Papua to solve all manner of problems. I mean, if we look at the pattern of violence associated with support for independence in Papua. It's been far more common to have attacks by armed supporters on security forces or state violence against Papuans than sort of attacks like the one in Nduga, where it's been primarily civilians, non-Papuan civilians who've been killed. Do you see that sort of pattern continuing into the future or, or might these tensions sort of around issues of population produce more violence against migrants? So... If I was to kind of conjecture a little bit about analyzing this incident in Nduga, I would say that there's a long history in Papua of the military kind of indiscriminately attacking civilians, Papuan civilians, in the name of chasing down a few separatists. So that we can see this this attack by Papuans in Nduga as kind of following that pattern in a sense of attacking certain people who they thought maybe deserved it, but then kind of capturing in that attack somewhat indiscriminately other people who would be regarded as civilians. But I think it's this issue of the blurring of the lines between settlers and security and migrants and security and workers and security that is really quite important. And it has been something that's happened in the past, although not very often. So there's although it's a different context, um, in about the year 2000 in Wamena, there was I think about 26 migrants killed by Papuans. And at that point, the context was different, but the police were basically having an attack on Papuans, and then police proceeded to kind of use migrant homes to hide, to shoot from, this kind of thing. And so Papuans went after police in these homes and somewhat indiscriminately killed people who were civilians. So I think this blurring of the lines in this having this kind of violent effect doesn't happen very often, but it has some sort of precedent. But the thing that I try to keep in mind as well is that there's a long history of people in Papua quickly mobilizing to restore order and peace and prevent escalation 
when things happen. So we usually call them an incident or something, but perhaps things that have happened in the past, say, 10 years where Papuans might have attacked a military post, the military has retaliated sort of against everyone, or perhaps the military have assaulted some Papuans and Papuans are, you know, the tensions are high and people want to kind of take uh, revenge. There's a couple of things, you know, dynamics where this happened also with civilian non-Papuans and Papuans in recent years. But the communities that are made up of Papuans and Indonesians have these mechanisms, I suppose, or processes whereby people do try to prevent escalation, prevent loss of life, and sort of restore an order to a certain extent so that people can kind of go about their daily lives. So I think that works against any kind of whole-scale civil war of Papuans and Indonesians or non-Papuans sort of civilians attacking one another. Finally, in April next year, we'll of course see the Indonesian presidential election and uh, either Jokowi returned or his challenger Prabowo Subianto taking up office later in the year. If you were to make one recommendation to whoever does occupy the Indonesian presidency from 2019 regarding Papua, what would that be? Hmm. I have a feeling that neither Jokowi or Prabowo would pay much attention to any of my recommendations. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, do I only get one? So there's the activists saying that basically demilitarization is like the first step to kind of stabilizing a situation that's deteriorating quickly. So that I think in a dream world, in an ideal world, if I can just ask whatever I want, I think demilitarization is pretty high up there on everyone's list. But also that you know, Papuans are not going to kind of forget about or get over or just sort of be distracted in any major way from wanting a political solution, a self-determination process. And so it's really about how long does Indonesia want to maintain this stance and at what cost to Indonesia, to lives, etc. My overall sense is that Indonesia needs to do a better job of showing that it values Papuan lives and recognizing the sense of crisis that Papuans, many Papuans feel themselves and their communities to be in. But that is not something that can be resolved through military, you know, operations. How likely do you, do you think that sort of change of tack is over the next five years in Indonesia? Well, it's a really hard question. I suppose you never know. But I think what we've seen, I think that it's not likely to actually go in that direction, unfortunately. What we've seen the past, say, year or so is increasing international support for such political dialogue and various kinds of investigations or independent sort of discussions of the situation in Papua, as well as widening support around the Pacific for West Papua and for decolonization, as well as just generally kind of discussion of many of these issues. And Indonesia has kind of, if anything, kind of really dug in its heels and kind of gone on the offensive, really, to shore up its relations in the Pacific, to make sure that any of these kinds of alliances don't gain gain ground or gather strength. So I think that it, that's probably looking likely to continue for as many, you know, potentially domestic, internal Indonesian reasons as international or Papua-specific reasons. Jenny, it's a concerning note to end on, and there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with us today. Thank you, Dave. That was Dr. Jenny Munro from the University of Queensland School of Social Science, author of the book Dreams Made Small, The Education of Papuan Highlanders in Indonesia. Today's episode is the final instalment of Talking Indonesia for 2018, 
Thanks so much to all of our listeners and guests for your support throughout the year. Talking Indonesia will be back bigger and better than ever in 2019, when of course Indonesia's year of politics comes to its culmination with the April 2019 presidential and legislative elections. We'll return in the new year on Thursday 17 January. Until then, as always, you can troll through the entire Talking Indonesia archive via the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you access your podcasts. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. I look forward to seeing everyone again in 2019. From me, it's bye for now. Thank you.